This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. And today is June the 12th, 2020. We return to normal format this week with some news about New Japan returning to events. Some notes from Triple H's media conferences before and after the recent NXT TakeOver. MLW has signed a streaming deal. Vince McMahon has sent an email. There's a new vice president and general manager for WWE's Middle East and North Africa business. The WWE Network has introduced the free version of the streaming service. Breaking yesterday, Paul Heyman is out and Bruce Prichard is in. And Stephanie McMahon had an interview where she said the W Network is twice as profitable as their former pay-per-view business was. We'll fact check that today. But first... New Japan Pro Wrestling announced on Monday night that they will have their first event since the shutdown for COVID-19 on June 15th. That's this coming Monday. The event will be in front of no fans. The June 15th event will have a surprise card and will be followed by events on June 16th through June 3rd, also empty arena events, with the events on the 16th through the 3rd being a part of the New Japan Cup. The finals, then, of the New Japan Cup will happen on July 11th at Osaka Joe Hall. The venue will be open to one-third its capacity, or about 4,000 fans. That event on the 11th will be followed by a second event on the 12th, the next day, also at Osaka Joe Hall also set up for one-third the capacity. The winner of the New Japan Cup tournament will face Tetsuya Naito for the IWGP heavyweight and intercontinental titles. Those two events at Osaka Joe Hall certainly being the most attended events since the COVID-19 crisis has shut down wrestling live events around the world. It will still be several months before most of New Japan's foreigners will be able to come to Japan and participate in New Japan events again. But what precautions are being taken? Apparently, there is no COVID-19 testing that will happen. Wrestlers and staff are being instructed to take their temperatures when they wake up and before they go to bed and log that information, as well as log all the people that, they're, that they are in physical contact with. There's supposed to be limited staff and limited press. Anyone with a fever over 99.5 degrees or anyone showing sy- symptoms will not be allowed in the building. For fans attending the Osaka shows, masks must be worn. Temperatures are to be checked at the door. Fans are to maintain social distancing while they're in the venue, and they will be asked to keep loud cheering to a minimum, as strange as that sounds. I suppose they don't want people yelling and screaming and getting their their saliva droplets all over the place. No autograph sessions, although there will be merchandise tables with shields in front of them. And there will be no catering backstage, and wrestlers have been told to bring their own food. And by the way, how prevalent is COVID-19 in Japan relative to other areas where there are already empty arena events? More on that in a minute. First, let's hear from WWE Executive Vice President Triple H, Paul Levesque, who was asked on a media conference call before NXT TakeOver, this call on June 4th. He was asked by ProWrestling.net's Jason Powell whether NXT, or WWE for that matter, was doing COVID-19 testing, and if not, why not? So, so the testing that we do 
is um, we have obviously a um, medical experts on our team, led by Dr. Maroon, Dr. Dugas. So they work with CDC and the government to determine what is the best approach for us to take to ensure the safety and the wellness of our performers. And that is what we do. That is working with the local and federal government. Um, you know, when, when you begin to talk about various types of testing, and there's a lot of that um, thrown around, the accuracy of those tests become questionable and how and, and everything else. So, um, you know, we need to, um, we need to do what we're being told to do by the medical experts. And once that widespread testing that is accurate becomes available, we will do so. But the accuracy of those tests has to be there first. But in the meantime, our medical pro protocols are extensive and most importantly, they've worked. Paul Vec being questioned there about COVID testing, making it pretty clear that W is not doing any COVID testing while in Orlando, Florida at the Performance Center there. AW, as we know, we covered a few weeks back, according to Tony Khan, the CEO of AW and Cody Rhodes, an EVP, AW is doing COVID testing. Cody detailed some of AEW's precautions, again, which we covered a few weeks back. Levesque seems to be saying here that the reason why they aren't doing testing is because of the accuracy. You can't really trust the accuracy in the results of the COVID testing. And it's true that many COVID tests result in false negatives, which means somebody who actually has COVID-19 may take a test and the test result may not show that the person actually does have COVID-19. What there is not evidence of, and if anybody is actually aware of this being the case, then let me know. But what there is not actually evidence of is, is any widespread false positives. I could understand if there were a lot of false positives, that is, test results that show that the person does have COVID-19, when in reality the person does not have COVID-19. I could see how that would be a problem that would lead to a lot of people being quarantined and a lot of shutting down of operations that don't need to be shut down because in reality, the person does not actually have COVID-19. But if testing, even if it's not always accurate, and if there are not wide instances of false positives, even if the tests are only 33% accurate or 25% accurate, at least they would find a positive case with some accuracy. When you're not doing testing, there is no way to discover a case except for looking for symptoms, which everyone is also doing. It's hard to understand why WWE, if they can afford it, and presumably they can. They are the biggest wrestling company on the planet. They are highly profitable. They will have their most profitable year ever in 2020. It's hard to understand, even if a COVID-19 test only catches the, the virus some of the time, it's hard to understand why WWE wouldn't want to go to every measure to try to prevent transmission for the sake of their talent and for the sake of the general public who that talent subsequently may come in contact with. And again, if I'm just a WB investor who is only economically interested and has no human or health or safety interests, I still am at a loss to understand why WB wouldn't take every measure available to protect the availability of one of the company's greatest assets, arguably its greatest asset, its talent and additionally, whatever staff and employees are working the events as well. Now let's talk about COVID-19 prevalence. 
or at least some of the data that we know that's available about COVID-19 in various regions around the world. In Japan, where New Japan is finally returning to events, cases and deaths per capita as a result of COVID are far lower than they are in the United States, are far lower than they are in Florida. New cases being discovered in the United States per million people are still hovering around 50 or 60, sometimes 70 per day in recent days. This data, by the way, is sourced from ourworldanddata.org, which sources its data from the European CDC, which collects its data from government reporting. So the U.S. doing per million people 50 to 60 new cases per day in the last week or so. Compare that to Japan. New cases per million people are less than 0.4 per day. I'll say that again, 50 to 60 per million per day. 50 to 60 in the United States. Compare that to Japan, less than 0.4. They're hovering around 0.3 per day. 50 or 60 versus 0.3. Deaths per million. The United States is doing in recent days, past seven days, one to three deaths per million. Compared to Japan in the last seven days, doing at most 0.05 deaths per million. On the 8th and the 9th this month, there were no deaths at all. So again, the U.S. doing 1 to 2 to 3 deaths per million. Japan, 0.5, sometimes just 0. But let's look at just Florida. New cases per million, sometimes 40, 50, 60, 79 the last two days per million. So a very similar rate of new cases to the United States as a whole. New deaths, not as bad in Florida as in the United States as a whole. New deaths per million has been under one for a little over a week now in Florida, although still many times the rate in Japan. Maybe more importantly, though, if you look at the counties where AEW and WWE are running, AEW in Duval County, WWE in Orange County, Orange County had its highest count for daily new cases on the 10th and 11th, that is on Wednesday and Thursday. 124 on Thursday, 121 on Wednesday, their highest days ever for COVID-19 confirmed cases. Before that, cases in both Duval and Orange County had peaked in early April. Daily new cases declined through the end of April and into early May and then have been on the rise ever since. Break that down into a per capita, new cases per million in Orange County. Last seven days have averaged 56. Duval. Last seven days have averaged 28. So neither Duval or Orange County doing quite as bad as the United States overall over the last seven days. But cases in Duval County, again, where Jacksonville is, where AEW is, they are not declining, although they are not growing. And cases in Orange County, where Orlando is, where WWE is, are on the rise. So in New Japan's case, where they are not doing COVID testing either, it would be safer, I would say, if they were doing COVID testing, and that it is less safe that WWE is not doing COVID testing because the COVID-19 prevalence is probably much higher in the area that is local to where WWE is doing production. And in fact, although maybe testing, the increase in testing has something to do with this, but the prevalence of cases seems to be growing. More from Triple H on the media call following NXT TakeOver. Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful asked Paul Levesque, what's the deal with his new corporate title? No longer the executive vice president of talent, live events, and creative, as he had been since August 2011, and now as of February, the executive vice president of 
global talent strategy and develop. Hey, Paul, thanks for taking the time. Uh, much had been made of your, your change sure. in title, so to speak, and you even joked about it on the air on one of the first Smackdowns from the PC. How did your duties change or, or did they at all with, with the new title that you have? It, it really, it's just a funny thing because people made such a huge deal out of that. It really didn't. It was really just for us to be able to make a more concerted focus with NXT being live every week with UK, everything else. Obviously, this was before the pandemic. Um, but with that being live every week with everything going on, plus the increased uh, drive from us to shift to a larger international presence in the same format. So replicating what we did, not only in, in you know, NXT here, but NXT in the UK, taking that to a whole nother level, going to other countries, India, Middle East, uh, Latin America, you know, whether that be Japan, Mexico, whatever that is, all those places. So it was, it was putting a more focused increase on all of that. I still do all the stuff that I did before. I just don't have the day-to-day responsibilities of having to, you know, sometimes it's funny people see the titles, but they don't even understand what goes on into all of those, um, those categories and what the responsibilities are. So I don't have to have the day-to-day responsibility of every single aspect of the, the live events domestically and internationally, right. Which is, it's, it's a, it's a lot. Um, the, the talent relations aspect of it, the travel, the, um, all those other aspects of it, the intense day-to-day sort of kind of down in the weeds. But those were all things that I was responsible for that were taken off my plate to give me more freedom to be able to grow uh, those other things internationally and the development of talent and, and expand that out. And that's really what it was. So the speculation uh, surrounding that issue has been that Triple H maybe has been demoted. Uh, that's what was reported in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter after the change to Triple H's t- executive title was was made public uh, in WWE's annual proxy statement that comes out uh, every late winter. That came out in early March this year. I don't have a strong feeling about this uh, one way or the other. Um, but to put it in the context, at least that others are viewing it in, it's being viewed in the context of, hey, look... Um, there was a television producer who was let go or who left the company recently, who was viewed to be the heir of Kevin Dunn, who is executive vice president of television production. It's speculated that the day that Triple H takes over, if, if he ever did, and it seemed more certain in the past that he was going to take over many of Vince McMahon's duties someday when Vince McMahon steps back or in you know, more likely to be the case, is no longer able to do his duties. Uh, the, the speculation is that the day that that happens, I believe this is according to Meltzer, that Paul Levesque, if he had the power, would replace Kevin Dunn with someone else. And we view this in the context of NXT is not winning its viewership competition against AEW Dynamite. AEW Dynamite is still beating NXT on a weekly basis. Every week in, in the key demo and most weeks in total viewership. And others have added the context of the recent SmackDown episode, which was a tribute to Triple H's career and the awkward moment where Vince McMahon comes out and kind of jokes, maybe mostly joking, maybe partially not joking, who knows, as he disparaged Triple H again, maybe in a joking manner, 
and then also said some nice things about him sincerely as well. I don't know. I, I do feel it's less certain now that Triple H is going to take over as many of Vince's man, Vince McMahon's duties as I would have thought a few years ago. And uh, I and we just have no idea what what kind of detailed secession plan is really in place. If Vince McMahon were to pass away tomorrow, what would happen? I don't know. What would Paul Levesque's role be in the company? I don't know. Maybe there's a secession plan that would give some guidance. Maybe it would just be up to the board of directors to delegate duties and appoint a new CEO. And and by the way, whenever we talk about this sort of topic, the, the idea of secession, the idea of what, what's Triple H going to do to take over the business someday, Triple H is probably never going to be the CEO of this company. And the day that Vince McMahon can no longer do the CEO duties, Triple H is not going to be the one to become the CEO. I think that's sort of a common misconception. What did or does seem possible is that Triple H will become the head of creative for WWE overall. Being CEO, no. Just because Paul Levesque does not have a business background, does not have an MBA, does not appear to be being groomed for the CEO role, but is being groomed, or at least it was perceived that he was being groomed for the head of creative role, which is different from the CEO role and all the duties that come with that. Head of creative being one of many roles that Vince McMahon has in the company. In a report on F4W Online from Dave Meltzer and Josh Nason, MLW has signed a deal with the streaming service DAZN, or as W interim CFO Frank Riddick sometimes refers to it, DAZN. But DAZN uh, is a streaming service that carries Bellator MMA boxing from fighters like Canelo Alvarez and Anthony Joshua and some other sports. It even at one point in 2017 in Japan carried WWE Ron Smackdown. But this is the first time that the American version of DAZN will carry pro wrestling. MLW programming will continue to air on Be In Sports on Saturdays, as well as on YouTube. Throughout the pandemic, MLW, which is led by former WWE writer Court Bauer, hasn't run any events and has their next TV taping scheduled for October in Dallas, Texas. According to PW Insider, Vince McMahon sent out an email to all staff... It's not clear if this included WWE talent, wrestlers, but on June 3rd, two Wednesdays ago, he sent out an email letting people know that 24-7 mental health counseling would be available to anyone who feels they need assistance, and he provided an email address for anyone who works for the company who wants to directly address diversity concerns. It's not clear, but it seems that this is in response to protests following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And maybe since we're, since mental health counseling is part of this email, maybe in response to uh, the apparent suicide of stardom pro wrestler Hanakamura. And we learned on June 4th, last week, Thursday, from the website Broadcast Pro that covers media in the Middle East, that Bandar al-Mashadi has been named the vice president and general manager for WWE's business in the Middle East and North Africa region. The article, which looks like a press release, says that Al Mashadi will work with partners across all of WWE's lines of business, including television, live events, marketing, sponsorship, advanced media licensing, and merchandising in the region. And he will also manage the local operations for the company's 10-year partnership to provide, as we know, two major live and broadcast events in Saudi Arabia for the Saudi General 
Entertainment Authority. Formerly, Al Mashadi worked for six years for OSN, which is WWE's former media partner. As listeners may know, WWE is now without a broadcast partner in the MENA region, the Middle East North Africa region, and has been working on trying to get a new deal in that region for over a year now, since the OSN deal expired in April 2019. Last we knew, WWE was still negotiating with NBC, the broadcaster that has 60% ownership from the Saudi government. So we'll see if Al Mashadi can close the deal for WWE. Maybe we'll be seeing a press release sometime in the future, or maybe we'll get another update when WWE reports on Q2, which I would expect to be happening sometime in late July. And it's the end of an era for the WWE Network, as WWE recently launched its free tier of its over-the-top streaming service. It quietly dropped the free trial offer, which would give first-time subscribers full access to the W Network for 30 days. W has dropped that, and now there's a free tier that anyone can access, but you're getting a much more limited uh, access to the W Network library, as W probably sees that there's an opportunity to attract ad revenue if W can get more people watching for free while still enticing customers to sign up for $9.99 a month for full access. Somewhat related, Stephanie McMahon recently had an appearance on a podcast called CMO Moves, hosted by Nadine Dietz. And I did, on on my way home from work today, listen to the episode in its entirety. And they talked about a lot of things, but most notably for me, WWE's chief brand officer, Stephanie McMahon, put over the the great success that is the WWE Network. Uh, Interesting in this clip I'm about to play, she does mention that WWE, uh, before they launched the WWE Network, apparently was negotiating with with a partner who she does not name, a linear TV channel. They were negotiating to to give them the library, to license the library to, to this channel. So that's a bit of news. But more importantly, what we're going to get into here is Stephanie McMahon says that the W Network was very profitable and twice as profitable as their prior pay-per-view business. Uh, a lot of opportunity there. And on pay-per-view... Fans were paying, you know, north of $65 when you could watch it for $9.99 on WWE Network. So it was a tremendous value proposition for us, for our audience. And on top of that, we have, you know, all kinds of original programming, other live event programming. You know, I can get into the whole nuts and bolts of it, but we're currently around, you know, and of course there's a lot of churn, but we're around 2 million subscribers And uh, when you think about the fact that we intentionally cannibalized our own pay-per-view business, it was a huge risk, particularly at that time. It was a really big calculated risk. And that's what we believe in, is taking calculated risks. And it was based on research. We were actually pretty far down the pike with a linear deal, um, but they wanted to lock up our rights for 10 years. And we saw this opportunity. So we did some more research, found that our fans were five times more likely to watch online video than at that time, just in America, than the American norm. And we decided we had a real opportunity and that's, that's why we went for it. And um, it was hugely profitable for us, more than doubled what we were doing on pay-per-view. So it was hugely profitable, more than doubled what they were doing on pay-per-view. And I guess that's sort of true, but it's misleading. It leads one to believe that after the W Network, because of the W Network, as if the opportunity cost of the W Network was only the cost 
of cannibalizing the pay-per-view business, which is not the case. Now, this is the way in which Stephanie's statement is true. Let's look at the last three years of WWE pay-per-view business before the network was launched. So that's 2011, 2012, and 2013. OEBDA, which is a measure of profit, which is the only measure of profit that WWE reported for four particular segments of its business, including pay-per-view. So in OEBDA, for pay-per-view, in 2011, $40 million. 2012, $45 million. 2013, $34 million. And that's an average of $40 million. So we've taken the sample of those three years. What's the average for those those last three years before the network was launched? $40 million in OEBDA, which again is a measure of profit. And OEBDA stands for Operating Income Before Depreciation and Amortization. Not, not really important to understand what all that means. It's a measure of profit. So that's the benchmark that that you would think the network has to reach in order for the opportunity cost to be a break-even at least, $40 million. The year that the network launched in 2014, OEBDA was actually a negative, negative $1.8 million. And W's reporting this time includes pay-per-view. So they've, they've wrapped up in the reporting after this time, both the network and pay-per-view. So we don't get a breakdown of what, what each individually did. They put them together in their reporting. So 2014, that entire business, network and pay-per-view combined, lost almost $2 million because of the startup costs of the W network, which were large. Okay, but well, what about after that? In 2015, again, remember our, our mark to meet is $40 million. That's how much profit the pay-per-view business is worth. 2015, they reached $50 million in OEBDA. 2016, $43 million in OEBDA. 2017, $64 million in OEBDA. So W is exceeding the profitability of pay-per-view through the W network. One to one. And we don't know what happened in 2018 and 2019 because WWE changed its reporting. We do know revenue. And if the OEBDA margins remained about the same, then 2018 and 2019 would be about, I would guess about $67 million, $61 million. So well in excess of of $40 million that the pay-per-view business was providing in terms of profit. But again, it's important to understand that the opportunity cost of the W network was not just the pay-per-view business. But before we even get to that doubling, as Stephanie says, doubling the profits is not true. Even if we are as as charitable as possible to her statement, uh, 40, you double 40, that's 80. And WWE, it doesn't look like they ever came close to doubling the profits. They didn't come close to $80 million in OEBDA in a year. But anyway, the opportunity cost of the W network, I estimate, has not been earned back by the company. I estimated that WWE is about $90 million in the hole still on the W network strategy as of the end of 2019. They are starting to make some of that money back because the network is more profitable per year than the pay-per-view business was. But it's important to understand that the strategy negatively impacted other areas of business besides pay-per-view, including the home entertainment business, that is basically their DVD business, the digital pay-per-view business, the traditional pay-per-view business, which is obvious, and also, and most importantly, and we'll get into this, TV rights. So what am I talking about here? The home entertainment effect was probably the least significant. You know, the appeal of physical media. Nobody wants physical media anymore. People probably would have bought fewer DVDs over time regardless. Certainly they did because the W Network was out there and every event, every pay-per-view event, and lots of other content was there on the W Network. You no longer needed to buy DVDs to watch that stuff. 
Now, I think the optimal strategy maybe in hindsight would have been to continue to do traditional pay-per-view, let's say, and then also offer the content that you used to sell on DVD through some sort of a la carte digital product. But anyway, the home entertainment piece is the smallest piece, and that's maybe at most a few million dollars in profits per year, maybe less than that. Now, before the W Network was launched in 2014, W was selling pay-per-views on W.com. So traditional pay-per-view wasn't the only way to order the pay-per-view. You could also order it online. Now, if there had been no W Network, online sales of pay-per-views probably would have grown over time. As the popularity of streaming devices like Apple TVs and Roku devices and so forth grew, there probably would have been more opportunities and more willingness from consumers to order pay-per-views directly through the internet. And I don't know, but I would imagine that the profitability of these digital pay-per-view sales was or would be greater per buy than the traditional pay-per-view business. Because with the traditional pay-per-view business, where WWE partners with cable companies and satellite companies to sell pay-per-views, they split that revenue with the distributor, with the cable or satellite company. And I've heard all, all sorts of suggestions about what the split is. Maybe it's 50-50, 45-55, 40-60, something in that range. But I would imagine if WWE Maybe you can sell those pay-per-views in a more direct-to-consumer manner. Could really make the the profitability per buy considerably better than the profitability per buy of selling a traditional pay-per-view. Obviously, traditional pay-per-view was deliberately self-disrupted, and again, as we already explained, that was worth about about forty million dollars of profit per year. But most importantly, in two thousand fourteen, here we are, early in the year. W is getting ready to launch the W Network in February, launching, I believe the date is February 24th, 2014. And at that time, W's current TV deal for Raw and SmackDown with NBC Universal is set to expire in the fall of that year. So at the end of September, that deal is going to expire. WB is in negotiations to renew the contract. I don't know if they were negotiating with any other partners, but Vince McMahon had told analyst Brad Saffalo that he could put him in a hammerlock if they didn't at least double their TV rights fees for Raw and SmackDown. I mean, that's uh, based on the contracts in play here. We're talking about 75 to 100 million of incremental EBITDA if you did, in fact, double your television rights fees. So I just want to make sure that I understand what you're saying is that's what you're playing for here. I'll allow you to put a hammerlock on me if we don't. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll turn it over. That was from WWE's earnings call on August 1st, 2013. But when the deal was finalized in May 2014, rather than a 2x increase or a 3x increase, like many in the stock market expected, WWE got from NBC Universal a 1.7x increase. And WWE shares tumbled as a result. WWE even had to do an emergency conference call to address investor concerns to talk with the analysts. Where Vince McMahon said, quote, we were a little disappointed with our NBCU deal. Whether we failed or not, I'm not certain. End quote. And he went on to say that the timing of the W Network launch in February, quote, definitely had a negative impact, end quote, on WWE's TV rights negotiations with NBC Universal and with other potential TV partners. He wasn't sure how much he went on to say, quote, that was part of a lighter number in terms of television rights. That's a fair thing to say. End quote. I have searched high and low for the audio, but because this was like a special conference call that W did, 
I cannot find it. But we do have quotes courtesy of this Variety.com article from May 19th, 2014, where Vince McMahon admits that the timing and the choice to launch the WWE Network in February 2014 negatively impacted W's ability to negotiate lucrative TV rights fees. Still an increase, but not the increase that the stock market was expecting, not the increase that the company was expecting. But so how much money are we really talking about here? At least for the US deal, which is by far W's biggest TV partner, its biggest TV market. So I believe W's current deal that it had from 2009 to 2014 was worth an average annual value of 77. For simplicity, I'm going to talk about five-year deals. And I'm going to talk about the entire value of the deal across the entire lifetime of the deal. So five years, about $385 million, I believe is the value of the deal that they were, that they had already. They were talking about a 2X or 3X increase on that number, 385. So 2X on that would have been 770. 3X on that would have been $1.1 billion. So there's W talking about somewhere between 770, $770 million and $1.1 billion. And they end up with about 650. So the timing of the network launch, it looks like costs WDB more than $100 million in revenue. Okay, not profit, but over $100 million in revenue. But why? Why did the TV networks care about the W network to the extent that it's, that it's so drastically changed what the networks were willing to pay for Raw and SmackDown. It's not as if the, the W network was going to also li- have a live broadcast of Raw and SmackDown. Raw and SmackDown were and are only broadcast or are only available on the W network after 30 days. And you already had Hulu at that time that was making Raw and SmackDown available on you know, video on demand the next day. Of course, NBC Universal owns a piece of Hulu. But more importantly, NBCU's parent company is Comcast. Comcast is a cable distributor that is a partner to WWE in selling traditional pay-per-views. Something else that might have been concerning, but probably to a lesser extent, was WWE's boldness to get into the direct-to-consumer, over-the-top streaming business, possibly threatening to compete with NBC Universal Networks for watch time, for viewership time overall, not, not just WWE Network content time, but overall. At a time in 2014 where these big media companies were suffering losses in subscribers, people were cutting the cord or never adopting the cord, and companies like NBC Universal hadn't yet figured out a strategy on how to get into the video streaming business, as they have now with products like Peacock. So it wasn't until 2018 when WWE finalized its next five-year term of USTV rights fees, where it split off the rights of Raw and SmackDown, Raw going to NBCU, SmackDown going to Fox, and it wasn't until then that WWE got the big raise that it had anticipated earlier. And it was for those deals, those deals which went into effect in the fall of 2019, that WWE got an increase of 3.6x overall between the two deals, with a five-year total value of $2.35 billion. And who knows if that number might not have been even higher if WWE had been able to negotiate a bigger deal in the previous round. That is, who knows if W's current deal couldn't have been even bigger if, at the time, W had had a higher rate to start from from which to negotiate. But there's a great deal of variability in trying to imagine what an alternate scenario would be like if W had never launched the W network and continued to sell pay-per-views primarily or exclusively on traditional pay-per-view or also digital pay-per-view. 
but it's pretty clear when you consider all of the costs, all of the opportunity costs associated with launching the W network in the way that they did in the time that they did. And timing has a lot to do with it. The choice to launch the network at the same time as they were negotiating a major TV rights deal. But all of those choices that cannibalized home entertainment, which is a small piece of business, cannibalized the opportunity with selling pay-per-views digitally, which probably would have grown in an alternate timeline, that cannibalized, yes, the $40 million of Aweebda associated with the traditional pay-per-view business, but most importantly, cost WB probably tens of millions of dollars in profits by negatively affecting TV rights negotiations. In addition to tens of millions of dollars that WB had to spend to pay for the network startup costs. So I don't think you have to make an aggressive estimate to see that the network is still an investment that the company is waiting to have pay off. And as I said earlier, I think there's still $90 million down on that investment. Now you might say, but wait, you know, the value proposition of the network was not just selling subscriptions for $9.99 a month. And that's true. The network caused millions of people to create user accounts from which W could extract our favorite thing, data. And W could use that data, and they did, to execute micro-targeted marketing, customized marketing to sell you merchandise for, you know, associated with stars who you searched for or engaged with on the network, to sell you tickets for live events that are near your location. And that has some value. It's hard to say how much. But we do know at least it wasn't so much value that it, 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 it didn't prevent the live event business and the merchandise business from declining for the last two years. But there's also value, wait, there's also value in the W network in terms of maybe you could take all that data, all that user data that you've collected through the millions of user accounts, both active and inactive, and you could sell that data to third parties. That sounds like a great idea until you think about what's the value of that data when you may even within that data itself know, or at least speculate that the income level of the typical W consumer is probably lower than the average consumer overall, making that data less valuable. And Vince McMahon even said on the February 2020 earnings call that he thinks that the value of the data that the network provided, which was a big deal, a big talking point for former co-president George Berrios, Vince said that he thinks that that was overemphasized. And it's worth noting too that W did a lot to build a data analytics team to work on the data that was extracted from those user accounts from the network itself. But what else can we say? Are there other, other ways that the W network provided value other than the obvious? You know, W pay-per-views are now viewed more than likely by a larger audience than they would otherwise. Pay-per-views previously were bought by a few hundred thousand people, usually in the low hundred thousands for the B pay-per-views. And now you've got a W network that has well over a million paid subscribers, not to mention the free trials. And all of them may not be watching every pay-per-view, but probably a lot of them are. And that adds up to many hundreds of thousands rather than in the low hundreds of thousands who are watching a given pay-per-view. So you've got a bigger audience that's watching the pay-per-views. So is, is that valuable in some way? If you've watched a WWE pay-per-view lately, you've probably noticed that there's a lot of commercials on there, not just for WWE products and content, but for other advertisers and sponsors as well. That's advertiser and sponsor space that WWE is selling. And that's valuable. W reported more than $70 million in media ad revenue last year in a segment that also contains YouTube revenue and other TV placements on Raw and SmackDown and other programs, NXT as well.
So it's hard to say what that's worth, especially in terms of profit, but we can say with some confidence that it's not nearly enough for the network to have been financially worth it, at least not yet. Now, to be fair, we're saying all of this with the benefit of hindsight. The network launch was a bold strategy, and it it was a great value for consumers to get all of the pay-per-views for essentially $120 a month, rather than like, what, 60 times 12, which is 720. So essentially, if you were a customer who was buying every single pay-per-view, it's a savings of hundreds of dollars. But the big gamble of the W Network was that they could get three to four million paid subscribers consistently. And we have investor slides from George Barrios from 2014 that show, that justify how they were going to to get that many paid subscribers. These investor slides said, would look very much even at the the time and definitely now, unreasonable things like there are 78 million active WB broadband homes with a WB fan in it uh, globally, suggesting that they had consumer survey data that showed that more than half of US homes had either a lapsed, casual, or passionate WB fan in it, that 11% of US homes had a passionate WB fan in it, which quite frankly, just, just sounds unbelievable. And through this, they, they justified that out of the 98 million global WB broadband homes with a, with a some sort of WB fan in it, all they had to do was capture three to 4% of those 98 million homes. And from that you get three to 4 million paid subscribers. It sounds like they had some bad survey data. And as we know now, sitting here in June of 2020, the W Network is stalled at about 1.5 million paid subs on average per year. And the W Network has never reached any higher than 2 million when you combine trials and paid subscribers around the time of WrestleMania. That's what they've done for about the last three WrestleManias, combined free and paid, 2 million. So the future of the W Network now, if you've been listening to this show regularly, you probably already know. It looks like WWE is going to sell its pay-per-views when it gets the chance, when COVID-19 passes, if not earlier. They're going to try to sell the rights, the broadcast rights to the pay-per-views off of the W Network and onto a major streaming player. Maybe Peacock, maybe ESPN+. Maybe they'll be offered as part of a subscription package with those streaming uh, services. Maybe they'll be offered as a, as a isolated pay-per-view purchase like UFC events are offered through ESPN+. Who knows? But that seems to be the strategy going forward. And in the end, I think the W Network will be a place uh, where you, you can watch the video library. You can watch NXT TV on a, on a one-day delay. You can see the takeovers, which will be the, the most valuable remaining piece of content, the takeovers. And you can see NXT UK and whatever other secondary brands they've got on there and whatever other shows they've currently got on there, like Table for Three or whatever. And I think there's still a market of a couple hundred thousand paid subscribers for, for that product which is probably more than enough for the network to remain profitable. And the pay-per-views can probably attract more than enough revenue to provide W with an even more profitable outcome than they currently have with the current W network strategy. And maybe that ultimately leads to the W network uh, or leads to an outcome where W has a twice as profitable outcome as it had with pay-per-view alone. But that's not what they have currently. Thanks to Stephanie McMahon for sending me down that rabbit hole. But in other news, on Thursday, it was announced via WWE's Twitter account. That's right, there was a firing via Twitter, probably not. But it was announced on WWE's Twitter account uh, that, quote, in an effort to streamline our creative process for television, we have consolidated both teams from Raw and SmackDown into one group, led by Bruce Prichard. Paul Heyman will concentrate on his role as an in-ring performer. 
end quote. So previously, Bruce Pritchard had been the executive director for SmackDown, which follows Eric Bischoff's brief stint in that role. And Paul Heyman had been the executive director for Raw. So this news is saying that Paul Heyman is no longer in that role and Bruce Pritchard's going to take over for both Raw and SmackDown. And yes, Paul Heyman is going to concentrate more on his role as an in-ring performer, a role that is not currently active since Brock Lesnar isn't on TV at the moment. So I don't have much to say about that news in particular other than just in a, in a general sort of, isn't it amazing that uh, so many of the same people, and I know I'm not the first person to point this out, it's, it's been a, a a topic on the Voice of Wrestling flagship podcast as well. But isn't it amazing that so many of the same people have been in executive positions, let's let's call them, for so long in pro wrestling? Whether it's 1993 or 2003 or 2020, it's been a sort of a carousel of Vince McMahon, Bruce Prichard, Paul Heyman, Eric Bischoff, Jeff Jarrett, Vince Russo, Jim Cornette, etc., I guess a big part of the trouble, I guess, is, and all of this, I think, is sort of the, the part of the organ of why pro wrestling in the U.S. isn't more popular than it is. But a big part of the trouble, I think, is the people in power in U.S. wrestling for 20, 30 years are almost completely, and even, even before 20 or 30 years longer than that, are almost completely and almost always have been dishonest men who happen to be white. And today, it's almost all of these men who are over the age of 50, if not much older. And wrestling is a nepotistic business. And I, I can't say if it's any more or less nepotistic than most industries, but U.S. wrestling is definitely nepotistic, somewhat by nature. There aren't any real scoreboards in pro wrestling. And even the economic results that I try to spend so much time thinking about and learning about, even the economic results are open to interpretation and excuses. You know, every company, at least in U.S. pro wrestling, it seems, is Friends Championship Wrestling. Even All Elite Wrestling, which has circumvented the carousel of this, you know, six to, to, to ten of the same guys who have been in control. But in, in wrestling, talent and hard work, unfortunately, do not necessarily rise to the top. You rise to the top if you have the right relationships, if the right people think highly of you. And it helps to be talented and to have great work ethic. But wrestling has largely been controlled by dishonest men who value loyalty and comfort zones, who may or may not value or correctly identify the kind of talent that really matters to the market. And those men have surrounded themselves with their friends, usually other dishonest men, and in some cases their wives and children. And there's an entire generation of wrestlers who are currently in their physical prime who I believe, sadly, are a lost generation, whose talent has seldom been recognized and adequately harnessed. Now, I have great hope for the, the current generation of wrestlers whenever they inevitably become the EVPs and the producers of the future. You know, in the case of AEW, some of them are. Um, lest there be a younger generation to follow who are feeling just as stifled. But I don't think there will be. At least that's my critical, optimistic view. You know, wrestling could be great. Sometimes it is. And wrestling is so great that it, it can still be economically sustainable in the stifled situation it finds itself in. But I do think wrestling is in a rut, in a way, U.S. wrestling, in a way not much like any other time in history that I'm aware of, in which the people who have a lot of the influence are deeply entrenched in it. 
And I think it's really stifling, not just the the critical reception of, of, of wrestling events, but I think it's stifling the economics of wrestling and the wider appeal of wrestling. Because I've been, I've been thinking lately of the importance of new stars, not just of star power, but of new stars in particular. We talk sometimes here on WrestleNomics about how important star power is and how important media distribution is. But I've been thinking lately that big increases in business usually coincide not just with the presence of star power, but with the emergence of new star power. So what I mean here is not just that they wrestled already, but that they were main eventers in a situation for the first time. Maybe they were mid-carders. Think about stunning Steve Austin. Then he became Stone Cold, and then he became a main eventer. He had been in companies. He had done a lot of stuff, but he hadn't been a consistent main event act yet. He becomes a main event act, and business explodes. Think about John Cena before he won the title from JBL at WrestleMania. He had been in WWE for a number of years, but after that point, he was a consistent eventer. Think about Masawa in 1990. He was Tiger Mask in the 80s. He had been a somewhat important star to all Japan during that time, but after 1990, he was the main eventer. And we can think of many historical examples of this. I won't go too far back in history because I kind of get out of my depth, but you look at around 1982 in world class in Texas, where the Von Erich sons were emerging and the Freebirds were there. And supposedly that moment where Michael Hayes slams the cage door on Carrie's head and it set the territory on fire. I don't have any data around that, but that seems to be the credible legend that the emergence of those new stars, that is the Von Erich sons and the Freebirds, coincided with an increase in business in the Dallas-Fort Worth territory. You look at WF in 1985, the emergence of Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. Now, it's true Hogan had been a major player in AWA, but on a bigger stage, he became the champion immediately in late 84 for the WF. Piper arguably, and I'm sure people can correct me if I'm wrong, had never really been a main eventer the way that he was featured in the WF. And obviously, there, those were two major players Hogan, probably a much bigger piece than Piper, who coincide, whose presence coincided with a big increase in popularity for the World Wrestling Federation. Or think of around 1984 with the emergence of the new stars, Jigusa Nagayo and Linus Asuka, their tag team, the Crush Gals, leading to the biggest period for a women's wrestling promotion of all time. Think of All Japan at the beginning of the 90s, with the emergence into main events of Mitsuharu Masawa, Toshiaki Kawada, and Kenta Kobashi. Likewise, around the same time in New Japan Pro Wrestling, with the emergence into main events of Keiji Muto, Shinya Hashimoto, and Masahiro Chono. About 1995, with ECW, with the emergence of Sabu, Sandman, and Raven. 1998 in the WF, with the coronation of Steve Austin at WrestleMania that year, and the big push of The Rock in late 1998, bringing on the hottest period in the history of the business. The emergence of Mystico for CMLL in 2005, coinciding with a long string of sellouts at Arena Mexico. The emergence of new star Kazuchika Okada in New Japan beginning in 2012. And I would argue Kenny Omega and Tetsuya Naito in 2016 and 17 after that, as New Japan's business continued to improve. 2005, with the emergence of new stars, John Cena and Batista, we do see that attendance increased somewhat. Pay-per-view buys increased a little bit. Merchandise sales grew. Google web searches went up. Certainly not a Rock Austin era, 
but an increase from 2003. And then later, around 2014, and maybe there are external effects that factor into this or just explain it entirely, but we see starting in 2014, merchandise sales increase, and for whatever it's worth, Google web searches increase. That around the time of the introduction of the S.H.I.E.L.D. members, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, and Dean Ambrose. Now, there's exceptions to this idea. You can think about WCW in 1996 when business started to pick up for, for WCW at that time. And the company was centered around the heel turn of Hulk Hogan. But Sting, who had been around since the early 90s as a top star. Kevin Nash, who had already been a top star for WF years before. And Randy Savage, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, who had already been main eventers elsewhere. And the only legitimate new star was Goldberg, who emerged well after business picked up. Goldberg emerging in about 1998 as a a main eventer. So that's an exception. But I think part of the lesson is that when you have good fortune with one star, history suggests that 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 can be rolled into creating additional stars. Austin's enormous popularity led to The Rock, which arguably led to Mick Foley, who wasn't as big a star as Austin or The Rock, but he was an additional star. Mick Foley being in main events for the first time in early 1999, followed by Triple H is a, is a main eventer for the first time, also later in 1999. And then WF peaked in 1999 to 2001, during which some of that time, Austin was absent due to a neck injury. And I think about how the, the Tanahashi Okada story, which started in February 2012, which coincided with the improvement of New Japan's business, was followed and sort of um, parlayed into putting over strong Kenny Omega with a G1 win in 2016. And then another big G1 Climax win for Tetsuya Naito in 2017. And that is each of those wins, although Naito had already won the G1 years before, but each of those wins established Omega and Naito as consistent main eventers. So I think what this reflection should teach us is that maybe promotions are sometimes not proactive enough about star creation, and they rely too much to rest on the success of a current star who's working and not sufficiently viewing one star's success as an opportunity to compound star power. And when you look at current WB through this lens, through this window, that maybe it's not just star power, but usually new star power that positively influences business. To be fair, WB has its titles on two relatively new stars, Braun Strowman and Drew McIntyre. But I also think about who's going to main event the pay-per-view this Sunday, and it's Edge and Randy Orton who have been pay-per-view main eventers since at least 2006, 14, 15 years ago. We are in a time in WWE where so many of the top acts, of the main event acts in WWE, regardless of their age, many of them are old. But even Seth Rollins has been a main event wrestler for more than five years. Roman Reigns, when he comes back, about the same amount of time. It seems as if WWE is waiting around for such and such star to catch on for a very long time. And then think about how relatively short the runs of other top stars in just WWE history were compared to the top runs of stars of today. Bret Hart was a main eventer in WWF from 1992 to 1997, about five years. Hogan was a top star in WWF from about 85, well, really 84 to 92. Austin was a top star in WWE from 98 to early 2003. The Rock, not much longer before he went to Hollywood. 
compare that to John Cena's 10-year run or The Undertaker, who's been a huge star since really 1992. Brock Lesnar, whose 2013 run alone is on its seventh year, not counting his 2002 to 2004 run. So if we apply this thought to AEW, if this idea holds true that new stars are what really pop business, if that's true, then the star who will take AEW to another level of popularity is not currently a main eventer there or on the high end of the card there. Maybe the, the star who could take AEW to the next level is not any of the executive vice presidents. Maybe it's someone lower on the card or maybe it's someone who's not even in the company at all yet. Time might tell. So that's all I have for this week. We caught up a little bit from last week. Thanks for listening last week. And I know it was an unusual kind of episode, but a necessary one. You can go back and listen to A Letter on White Innocence if you missed it. Thanks, by the way, to John Carroll for having me on Wrestling Omakase, where I got to talk about Toshiaki Kawada and other matches uh, for, we went for like two and a half hours. You can listen to that in the archives right here on the Voice of Wrestling podcasting network. I usually don't talk about wrestling itself, bell-to-bell action, but I did on Wrestling Omakase with John Carroll uh, the other week. You can support Wrestlenomics by subscribing to IWTV if you haven't already. Go to independentwrestling.tv and you can get a free five-day trial if you use the promo code WrestleNomics. You can read my latest written work at WrestleNomics.com. You can see a lot of resources there. Get links to lots of data. You can follow the latest events in television viewership for wrestling programming, Raw, SmackDown, AEW, NXT, through my Showbuzz Daily Google Sheet. You can follow WrestleNomics on Twitter, at WrestleNomics. You can follow me, at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston, and I will talk to you next time.